Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, we're considering safe places. For nearly 20 years, Outright Bookstore and Coffee House in Midtown was effectively a gay community center until it closed in 2012. Philip Rafshirn was the founder and owner of Outright. We'll listen back to an interview with him about the history of Pride Month. Anthony Porosky of Queer Eye finds comfort in the kitchen. Later, we'll hear about his love for cooking. First, safe haven for many unwelcome anywhere else. The ballroom scene is a fascinating subculture that gives a space for many in need of community. The documentary Paris is Burning focuses on the 1990s ball culture in New York City. Director Jenny Livingston followed African-American and Latinx gay, trans, and drag queens who participated in these elaborate balls. I spoke with ballroom legend Kiara Fox and Out on Film Festival director Jim Farmer in 2019 about the film ahead of its screening at the Plaza Theater last year. Here's Kiara Fox speaking about the ballroom scene. I would describe ballroom scene as an expression, maybe a counter-expression to a lot of mainstream ideas, fashion, runway, modeling. It's a culmination of all those things together. Yeah. And, and it really becomes performance art. It is performance art. It is voguing, all those things. Yeah. Does the ballroom community still exist today? The ballroom community does exist today, even more in a mainstream culture. We've gone worldwide. So it's taken on a, it's growing. We're on TV, movies. When did it arrive in the South? Do you know? The ballroom scene arrived in the South in 1996 when the House of Escada, which was founded by Tony Moultrie, held the first 
house ball in Atlanta. And that's when Atlanta was introduced. Well, maybe not necessarily introduced, but that's when it came to Atlanta. Okay. I wonder if that coincided with the Olympics, because that was when Atlanta hosted the Olympics. It was in January. It was MLK. So I can't remember. MLK 1996, Martin Luther King weekend. Yeah. So with the MLK weekend... Um, and, you know, that kicked off 1996, and the city had been counting down till July, so this was all part of that excitement. How does the documentary Paris is Burning showcase the culture and personal account of balls? You know, the film came out in um, 1991. It, it's a chronicle of New York's drag scene in the 1980s. really focuses on, you know, balls, voguing, and individuals. You know, it, it, I watched it again this morning, and it just it seems as relevant as ever. It really does. I mean, um, the film had such an influence on pop culture, such an influence on the LGBT community, the mainstream community. You, know, you look at, you know, like Pose today, which is Hughes, which is a direct influence uh, Paris is Burning. You had films like um, Saturday Church, When the Beat Drops, uh, Kiki, uh, Leave It on the Floor. It's made a profound impact. And again, it's just so topical. It deals with issues such as AIDS, homophobia, transgender issues. I mean, one of the one of the, the personalities in the film, unfortunately, is murdered before you know as as the as it's being shot. And, you know, you look today at, at so many of our transgender transgender sisters who are being murdered, and it just feels like not a whole lot has changed. Well, I would hope some progress has been made, certainly in terms of with the Marriage Equality Act. I think in a lot of ways we have, but, you know, every time you feel comfortable, something else happens. You maybe take two steps forward, one step back. So we make progress, but then we sort of go back a few inches. So it, it's, you know, a lot of it has, but again, sometimes we're reminded that not everything is the way it needs to be. One aspect of the film that's especially moving is how much of a family yes. community is provided by the houses. Yeah. Would you talk about why the houses were created? Kind of to piggyback off of what you're saying about acceptance and going into the mainstream, in the early 70s, 80s, a lot of people were alienated from their families. So you you picked a chosen family, and there was a motherhead figure and a father figure to kind of replace the biological family that you lost. And so that was the origins of the ballroom family to kind of just create another unity, you know, for people to get together and celebrate being who they were. And uh, to become a house mother or a house father, this this was a very responsible role and required a lot of commitment. It required a lot of commitment. And um, it was a, a role full of responsibility, and it meant a lot to be named a house mother, um, personally and in the ballroom. It spoke volumes about you, your career in the ballroom, your um, ballroom accomplishments. And over time, you start off as a regular member, and then over time, you make your way up the ranks, and then one day you may be mother. How long have you been a mother? Well, I was a mother. Well, I walked my first ball in 1995 um, under the House of Escada. I became mother of the house in 2000, 
until 2008, I was the mother of the House of Escada, overall mother. You have a certain mothers in different states, and you have your overall mother, the grandmother. Oh, many people think of voguing as the song by Madonna, but it started out with the ballroom scene and then became this phenomenon. Why did competitors start to vogue? Voguing has element, it, it has that sense of dance and kind of like a little shade towards the person you're voguing against, kind of like a little oomph to it. And that was, the, you know, those were the origins of performance. And it, actually, there are three types of voguing. And I think a lot of people are familiar with Vogue Femme, which actually started off as Femme Queen performance. Well, Femme Queens are transgender women. In the ballroom, they're identified as Femme Queens. Um, Cisgender men in the ballroom, they will be identified as butch queens, and they may be gay or straight, but they are not So the the voguing that you see the butch queens doing actually originated with the femme queens. And then there's another type of performance, which is called old way, which is a lot of precision and 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 straight lines. And then you have new way, which is resembles break dancing, about stretching and that type of stuff. I mean, it it's really a riff on the sort of exaggerated movements and postures that we associate with traditional fashion models. But the voguing in the ballroom scene goes further. I mean, it's downright acrobatic. It is acrobatic. Hence the name voguing. The poses that you would see in the high fashion magazines resembled some of the poses that the kids were doing when they were voguing. So it was deemed voguing. Why were these compositions especially important to African-American gay men and women? I think it's really important when we talk about ballroom, we talk about acceptance and, and racism and things of that nature, where a lot of African-Americans or people of color, there's a really strong Latin roots in ballroom as well, were not accepted into the mainstream areas, into the mainstream pageantry, into the mainstream. So we created our own way to celebrate our own selves and our own beauty. One of the categories upon which the contestants are judged Mm -hmm. is realness. And this seems sad to me because it had to do with passing. But we're in a different time. At that time, passing was survival. You know, you couldn't, if you couldn't walk down the street and make it to the store without getting clocked, you know, that could possibly mean your life. Mm. And like Jim was saying, we we're actually kind of back in those times. We we're kind of like going back to that again. So, <sighs> yeah, it, it has some, it's kind of controversial to some people now, you know, in these expressions. They're like, why do I have to? I can just be me and mm-hmm. live my own expression. So some people take uh, umbrage with the category a little bit sometimes. Okay. Do heterosexual or straight allies participate in balls now? We have a bunch of straight and heterosexual, cisgender normative allies in the ballroom. We have icons like Naomi Campbell who comes to balls and sits and judges and walks. So we have a lot of allies, a lot. And, and obviously some in very high places. In very high places, yes. 
this documentary was groundbreaking in 1990. Would you say the ballroom scene is still considered underground? It has underground factions still, but it is more mainstream. But I, I will say that the mainstream scene differs slightly from the underground scene. So there are small differences. So there still is an underground faction, but it is everywhere. Could you elaborate on what those differences are? Maybe the attendees, some of the categories themselves. You know, when it's a less high profile, you won't have those celebrities there. So again, in those conversations, when you, not necessarily appropriation, but when things move towards a more mainstream, some of the people who started kind of get left behind. Atlanta ballroom legend Kiera Fox and out on film festival director Jim Farmer. The entire documentary Paris is Burning is screening on YouTube. We'll hear more related to the history of Pride from a respected Midtown voice after a short break. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Though he shies away from the quotation now, Philip Rafshoon was often referred to as the mayor of Midtown. Rafshoon founded Outright Bookstore and Coffee House, a shop he owned for nearly two decades. Located at 10th Street and Piedmont, Outright was a welcoming gathering place for Atlanta's LGBTQ community until it closed in 2012. Philip Rafshoon joined me in June of 2018 to look at some Pride history. Well, June is the month that the Stonewall riots happened in, and Stonewall was kind of the kickoff for gay liberation. Uh, It happened in 1969. Uh, There was a bar, there still is, a bar in New York called Stonewall. And in June 1969, uh, there was a bar raid at the Stonewall Bar. And bar raids were very common back then in, in gay and lesbian bars. It was not legal to congregate together. It was not legal to dance together. And when you went out to a bar or a club, you ran the risk of going to jail, being arrested, being locked up. And one night in June 1969, people had had it. And the police came in, raided the bar, and people protested. 
and rioted. And the riots went on for days. And that was what many people refer to as the beginning of the modern gay rights movement. There is some controversy because many people believe that the coincidence of Judy Garland's funeral that day, June 28th, had something to do with the riots. Would you explain Judy Garland's link to the LGBTQ community? Well, Judy Garland was an icon in the LGBTQ community. Uh, She was a goddess, much as many have been over the years. Uh, Cher, Madonna, Lady Gaga. She had music and songs that spoke to gay people. And if you went to a Judy Garland concert, it was kind of like the home base of the LGBTQ community. I guess the gay community at the time or the homosexual community at the time. So she was a pretty big star. And some people say that the reason people were so angry that night was because of her funeral and and the way she died and the stress that she lived through her life. And there's people that say it was just bound to happen. I mean, it was 1969. We had been through years of civil rights protests and women's liberation protests were happening. There was just a groundswell of activity that sooner or later this was going to happen. Atlanta does have events during this month to honor Stonewall, but unlike New York and L.A., our Pride Parade and the main celebration Mm -hmm. take place in October. In October. Uh, It's a sort of interesting story. Pride here started in, in 1970, and there'd be most years there was a parade, there was a festival in the park, it grew over the years. And as we got into the mid-2000s, like about 2005, the weather seemed to get very, very hot when we had it at at the end of June. I mean, the end of June can be sweltering. And then for probably four years in a row, there were just torrential storms during the parade. And they would just come up out of nowhere. No matter when we had that pride parade, it would be stormy. But at the same time, we started going into a drought. And so the city in 2008, closed Piedmont Park to festivals and said, you have to move to somewhere else. Everybody was out. The Dogwood Festival ended up in a parking lot at Lenox Square. Pride ended up at the Civic Center on July 4th because we couldn't get the regular weekend. And, and both of those events turned out to be just disasters as far as attendance and and fundraising. Sure. So, I mean, July 4th also has the Peachtree Road Race. Exactly. Exactly. So there was a lot going on. The next year, the Pride Committee said, we've got to get in the park. And the city said, OK, you can get in the park, but you have to come after festival season, which meant that the next year, the event was Halloween weekend, which <laughs> ended up just being a horrible weekend for it because likewise, Lois, it conflicted with a big holiday, and I might say a big gay holiday. Yes. Uh, so the following year, they had a, the Pride Committee had the opportunity to get back in the park, and it was decided that since it was so hot in June, they would try doing it in October. Oh. And the weather was spectacular. Oh, well, October uh, is the most beautiful month of the year here. And every year they've had it since in October and have ended up with almost unanimously beautiful weather. So 
you'd be hard-pressed to change. Now, look, they've got pride celebrations all over the country. And there's some people that say, well, Atlanta was one of the first pride celebrations. It should be the same weekend as New York. It should be the same weekend as San Francisco. But look, the joy and the business of pride means that there's room for people who live in a place and people that visit a place. So we need to have some on different weekends. So it, it seems to work well for many people to have it in October. There's some that would prefer it in June, and I'm sure it will be debated for years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just like Judy Garland's exactly. role. Philip, what was your first Pride parade like? My first Pride Parade was in 1990. I, I had been out since high school in a way, but coming out is a process. And I, I, 1990, I had a lot of gay friends. Uh, I was not out at work, um, and I wasn't planning to go to the Pride Parade. But I opened up the AJC in the morning, and on the cover for the first time was a story about Pride. And my good friend, Jay Shoemake, was on the cover of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So I went to the parade and stood on the corner, actually right about Peachtree and 10th, and I was just petrified that I would get on the news or somebody from where I was working, I wasn't out at the time, at work, was, would see me. Was this when you were working at Georgia Tech? No, I went to Georgia Tech. I was working for NCR. For NCR. Which now is at Georgia Tech, basically. Uh, so I was I was a little scared to be there, and friends of mine came up and screamed at me. They said, off of the sidewalk and into the street. And so I went along. I walked into the park, and just the experience changed my life. That was a giant growth year for Pride. Uh, we went from, I think, a couple of thousand people to 5,000 people that year. The next year, there were 25,000 people there, and the year after that, the growth was just right upward, 50,000. By 1996, there were 100,000 people at Pride. You mentioned your first parade was in 1990 and that coming out was somewhat of a gradual process before that. With the late 80s being the height of the AIDS plague, I would think you're family must have felt terrified when you told them you were gay. How did they respond to your coming out? Well, it was a process for them. Uh, I came from a very progressive family, and I, I thought they would just embrace it with open arms, but they were scared as everybody else was about the possibility that lied ahead for me. Uh, but they, you know, it took them a little while, but they really stood up for me and made sure that uh, I knew what I was doing and supported me in any way that they could. So Pride Parade started in 1970, the year after the Stonewall riots. But it wasn't until 2003 that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the homosexual conduct law. It was, it was illegal to have sex. Up until that point, yeah, it had been illegal for same-sex couples to express their love and Correct. sexuality. Correct. Um, all of this is so mind-boggling. 
because it is so relatively recent. But what has been the impact from the court strike down that you can observe? From that particular court strike down, I think more people have been able to come out. I think more people have been able to feel comfortable being integrated into society when you don't feel that everything about your being is illegal, that you you won't get arrested for living your life openly. How have you seen Atlanta's LGBTQ scene evolve with these changes? Well, Atlanta's LGBTQ community really grew a lot during the Obama years. And I think everybody was able to feel more comfortable coming out. We got the right to be married during the Obama years. And and people have felt more open being out on the street, out at work, uh, out on their jobs, out in their religious institutions. Uh, it was a real period of growth. As far as in Atlanta, since Trump has taken office, I think it's it's made a lot of people scared, but also more than ever determined to fight for what's right. Uh, personally, uh, me and my partner got married after being together a, a little, 23 years. My family said when, when, when Trump got in office that we ought to go ahead and get married while you can because mm-hmm. you, you never really know. Uh, so you don't think there will be retrenchment? We won't retrench. There, there, there may be uh, laws that uh, he tries to, he and his party try to use against our community, like he, like they are using against many other communities, and making people scapegoats. But amazingly, our community has become very strong politically, and uh, we're going to be a really tough competition for him and his people. Philip, you've lived in Atlanta since you were six. You owned a landmark space for Atlanta's LGBTQ community, Outright Bookstore and Coffee House, and also a a neighborhood gathering place that many people who didn't live immediately nearby in Midtown were still proud of, just that it existed. When relatives would visit and we'd drive by, I would point out with pride, if you will. That's great. We had, can you imagine, in the middle of one of the most conservative states in the country, we had probably the most visible LGBTQ business in the country with big plate glass windows that had rainbows on them and proudly said, gay and lesbian bookstore. And everybody that would drive up would see that. It made a statement. What changes have you observed in Atlanta's LGBTQ spaces? It's tougher to have LGBTQ spaces because people can get what they want on the internet and people don't go out as much in general, whether it's any type of retail or any type of nightclub. Uh, or any type of restaurant. It's it's harder to get people out. But I think that people are getting a little tired of spending all their time on the internet and social media, and, and they are getting out more. There's um, 
There was a club that closed Burkhart's under some controversial circumstances, and people said, well, there's, you know, there goes another one, but something's opened in its place already, and there's another bar that's open. So I think it's, it's dynamic what's happening, and it's a continuum, and you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen, but uh, we've had a few bars and clubs close over the years. Part is because people don't go out as much. Part is because of the price of real estate and the rents. So there's been some changes in the spaces. And I wonder, because until recently, people have felt safer being out and gathering in public without fear of ridicule or, heaven forbid, violence, that is there not as much of a need for safe spaces? Of course, clubs, bars, there, there's, for many, there are specific types of gathering places, but are we at a point where we still need safe spaces? It depends who you are. If you, if you are settled down, if you have a strong support system, if you have a lot of friends that you go to their homes, then, then maybe you don't need to go out. Uh, but for everybody who does, there's, there's tons more out there that don't, and we, we need spaces where, where people are comfortable. Uh, these days, it may not need to be an exclusive LGBTQ space, although it's awful nice to go to them when you feel like it, but places that are welcoming, places that support uh, the LGBTQ community are important. In my work with Midtown Alliance, uh, we don't focus on LGBTQ issues, but I do work with a lot of restaurants and retailers and, and clubs, and, and, and they, they always feel a need to welcome the LGBTQ community. Where do you think Atlanta stands in terms of support or maybe lack of support for its LGBTQ community? Well, I think we have a good support system, but we, 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 we have tremendous issues here. We have a, an enormous LGBTQ homeless youth situation, and that's, that's one of the most toughest issues to deal with. I'm, I know that the, uh, the city is, is working on it. The, the mayor has called an LGBTQ advisory board, uh, which I've been appointed to, and one of the top issues is homeless LGBTQ population in Atlanta. Yes, it's very sad. Mm -hmm. But it also seems that um, there has been a good bit of action on behalf of supporting those teens. There is. There's a great organization, Lost and Found Youth. They've really raised awareness over the past six, seven years from an issue that not a lot of people thought about. Uh, there's also Chris Kids. I think it's called Chris 180 now. So there are organizations working on it, but it, it, it needs more work. Um, Always. Yeah. Yeah. Philip Rafshun, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. My pleasure, Lois. It's great to be here with you. Philip Rafshun was the founder and manager of a landmark space for Atlanta's LGBTQ community, the outright bookstore and coffee house. It was open for almost 20 years before it permanently closed in 2012. Mr. Rafshu now works at 
the Midtown Alliance as Director of Member Operations. You're listening to WABE Atlanta, the wildly popular Netflix series Queer Eye has been changing lives across the country, including Atlanta, since its reboot in 2018. In each episode, the Fab Five help people who want change by giving them lifestyle makeovers. One of those style mentors is Antony Porosky, the food and wine aficionado. While on tour last fall for his cookbook called In the Kitchen, Antony Porosky stopped by our studios and spoke with City Lights producer Summer Evans. She asked at what age he discovered his love for cooking. So that story has actually changed a few times. I thought that it was when I was about 17 or 18, when I was no longer living with my parents, and I was sort of like left to fend for myself in university. But I, uh, I was recently reunited with two best friends of mine from junior high. They're actually here. They live in Atlanta now, and we met in West Virginia, Shabon and Cindy Ann. And they were visiting in New York, and we were sitting, we were hanging out in a hotel room and talking about, you know, how crazy it is this new life with queer eye and everything and I was like oh yeah like who would have ever thought that I would work in food and they're like no but like you've been cooking like forever like I was 12 somewhere between 12 and 14 my parents would travel a lot and I would have I was the guy who had house parties (laughs) Um, I was that kid and still kind of am to some extent but not really but sometimes Um, and so people would come over but before we would basically rage I'd always have like a dinner party and everyone would like sit down and just kind of like break bread and I would like grill some chicken breasts on the on the barbecue skin on of course Mm -hmm. and then um, char some veggies and like it was important to just sort of like have that tradition even though I didn't really know what the heck I was doing I just kind of like figured it out as I went along the way I do in life and yeah I just sort of like I've always loved recreating that perfect like Norman Rockwell dinner setting and I've liked doing that since I was a kid and I try to do it today. On Queer Eye, do you get full reign on what recipes you want to create for these makeover subjects, also known as heroes? We do. So we get very little information and we basically come in and I never, sometimes I have ideas of things that I want to do, but you never really know until you meet the person. It's kind of like the wild, wild west. The first day we call it de-straightening where you go into the house and you do all of like your investigative work and ask a whole bunch of questions. Um, I never try to assume that anybody needs or wants anything. I just ask open-ended questions and sort of see where it leads. If somebody mentions that they want to eat healthier, then that's an opportunity to sort of like impart whatever knowledge and wisdom I have. But if they want comfort cuisine, then I'm all for it as well. If they want something that's ethnic or, or, or that's more diverse, then I'm, you know, hands-on with that as well. So it's really, it's figuring out what they need in such a short amount of time because at the same time, like, I don't, I don't like unsolicited advice, and so I don't like to give it either. So it's really just figuring out, like, what we can do in such a short amount of time and knowing that, like, I really want to leave them with a recipe, like, something that's going to kind of plant the seed for other things to come or just to get them kind of excited about cooking and, and figuring out how they can use that in their lives after we leave. Because their life goes on after we leave. Like, yes, it's a show. It's a job. But, like, they continue – hopefully they continue on with the lessons that they've learned afterwards, after we're gone. 
And also, like, it's the world of social media now, so they're, like, tagging me in photos and mm-hmm. stuff, so we get to kind of, like, creep in and see how they're doing afterwards as well. keep that relationship going. Yeah, yeah. So, so you kind of have to be kind of like a nutritionist as well as a psychologist as well as a food planner all in one. Yeah, I mean, I certainly do not uh, refer to myself with those titles as those are professionals who went to school for that. Like, I didn't go to school to, to become a cook. I, my major is psychology. But I think it's really just taking whatever knowledge I have. And sometimes it's recipes that I've never even really made before. So I'm looking at YouTube videos and looking at old, you know, Martha Stewart recipes and just getting inspired from different things and testing it out a night or two before. Because I usually have about two days to prepare after I've met the hero. So we have time to find a location, figure out what recipe I want to make, find a restaurant that kind of like fits or a setting where we can sort of like have our little lesson. And yeah. So I know in the cookbook that you like to make most of your recipes pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Is there like a this is what I'm sticking to kind of thing? Like, do you try to keep it as simple as possible or did you really get to explore your culinary skills in this cookbook? I think, yeah, I think it's the latter. Um, Some of them definitely are simple. I think some of my favorite recipes, particularly Italian food, I think for the most part, the food that I'm interested in is the stuff that is pretty simple to make, whether it's, it's a nice balance of limited ingredients, but high quality and technique. And if you know like one tip or trick with something, it can allow you to make like the perfect, for example, cacio pepe, which is basically Italian mac and cheese. And it's um, it's cheese, pasta water, pasta, and pepper. That's it. And it's all about temperature control and figuring out how to use your pasta water so you can emulsify the sauce and make it really rich and creamy without adding heavy cream to it. And it's something the Italians have mastered. And I that one took us a while to figure out. It took several trials, but um, so it was a lot of cheesy dinners, but we figured it out in the end. And then other recipes are definitely more complex, but they were things that I really thought were important to include in the book, like Polish recipes, for example. They can be laborious. These are like grandma recipes where they like sit by the stove all day long and they're preparing it. But like the Polish hunter stew, for example, which is a sauce that is best when you reheat it. It cooks for a few hours because it has to braise. There's a whole bottle of wine that has to sort of concentrate and have all the um, alcohol come out. Um, You want to render all the fat from the meat. But again, that's the type of dish that you make for 10 or 12 people. And it's something you can freeze in containers. And I would say that the book is definitely a balance. Like during, I have weeknight healthy-ish, which are things that you want to prepare. Like nobody has more than 30 minutes during the week anyway. So I want to be cognizant of that. But at the same time, I don't like things that are too gimmicky. Like I have a restaurant in New York. This is not a shameless plug, but a shameless plug where we were trying to figure out the menu. And we were like, do we want it to be vegan, keto, mm. paleo, pescatarian? And we were like, why do we have to, and like, and from my standpoint, it's like, why do we have to make it one thing? People have all these different t- types of diets and like, let's make it inclusive. It's what the show's about. It's what I'm about. And I want to sort of like keep it open. So I know that in the foreword, you paid homage to the original Queer Eye food and wine expert, Mm -hmm. Ted Allen. Can you talk a little bit about how your relationship began? Yes. So I was living in Brooklyn. I just moved from Montreal. And um, I've had a few people in my life who have always sort of basically said, like, look, I know that you want to be an actor. But like food is something like when you talk about it, there's just something that lights up in your eyes and you get really bug eyed and excited. And this should be something that you pursue. And I was really stubborn and I had like a dead set vision on what I wanted my career to look like. One of those friends was PJ Vogt. And we were roommates. We did acting classes together. Um, he's since gone on to, to start a really fantastic podcast named uh, Reply All on Gimlet Media. And he was one of those guys who was like, I think you should pursue food. He's like, you're living in Clinton Hill now. Ted Allen, the OG food and wine guy on Queer Eye, he lives in Clinton Hill as well. He's a big figure in the community, supports all the local gardens and restaurants. And like he's a huge Brooklynite who like moved from Manhattan. He's like, I think you should meet him. So I Googled him and I found out he had a cookbook called In My Kitchen coming out. 
and he was doing a book signing at uh, Greenlight Bookstores, and uh, a Greenlight Bookstore on Fulton in uh, in Clinton Hill, edge of Fort Greene. And so I decided, like, you know what? I'm just going to go up and introduce myself. And I went, bought his book. He wrote me a really sweet note that I still have to this day. Uh-huh. And um, and we became friends. And then he needed help along the holidays. He had, not anymore, but he had beehives on the roof of his Brooklyn brownstone, which is very Ted Allen thing to do. And he was packaging the honey with his husband, and they wanted to mail it out to their friends over the holidays, over oh, Christmas. And so they wanted help just putting the labels on and mailing them out. So I started working as a personal assistant. And I started cooking for him during the week. Um, and so I would cook for him. He would have barbecues during the summer where he would host um, all the chefs from Chopped. And so I would cook alongside these like awesome chefs, mm-hmm. intimidating as hell, um, but a great learning lesson. And so I basically started working for Ted and his husband over the, the course of a couple of years. And then my career took me towards being a gallery director in the city. And then, um, and then Queer Eye was being rebooted and I called him and I asked him for his blessing and, and he helped with the process and put in a good word with the show creators. So how does it feel to be back in the state that you began? I, I, I loved Atlanta. This is, this is where it started for us. You know, it was filming in Kansas City was different because people knew who we were. And so just our, the way that we interact with people and sort of the way that that energy sort of manifests itself was very different. Here there was kind of the innocence of is the show going to make it? Is anyone going to watch it? Are they going to love it? Are they going to hate it? We didn't know. And the, 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 the bright side of that is that there was just this, like, an innocent excitement and just sort of, like, really freely having fun. Like, I remember the first episode that we filmed with Tom Jackson. Like, we didn't know what we were doing. It was like the wild, wild west. It still kind of is because it's very much unscripted. But um, I think we were all nervous because some of us were like, we just, we didn't know. It was so uncertain. Like, our career is going to change. Are we going to go back to our regular jobs after this? Are we going to get picked up for another season? So it's uh, it's very nostalgic. And I'm also a very nostalgic person, so I get I get triggered very easily. But it's all happy thoughts, and um, I loved being here. It was so nice. Well, speaking of nostalgia, I know that you talk about a lot of recipes that are inspired by your Polish heritage. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about a few of your favorites? And did you talk to your grandma or your mother about some of these? Yeah. Um, so my actually, I only have one remaining grandmother, and that's my uh, my paternal grandmother. Love her. Great woman. Not a great cook. Um, never was. Never claimed to be. My father would say the same, so he wouldn't be offended by me saying this. It was actually my auntie Magda, who's my father's first cousin, she had a Polish camp when we were kids. The only purpose of it was basically to keep all the cousins connected because we have a massive Polish family. And so she would cook for me and um, some of the desserts featured in the dessert section. I don't bake. And so the the cookbook was a good opportunity to reach out to the women and the men in my life who've made desserts for me. It's like mm-hmm. just to pay homage to them. And then, for example, her daughter, Maya, who's uh, just a couple years older than I am, um, she was an excellent baker as well, and we would make these like awesome lemon bars on shortbread mm-hmm. that I remember from childhood. And so I got to like get in touch with her. It was a perfect, selfishly, the dessert section was a perfect excuse to get in touch with people that I haven't spoken to in years and just kind of like connect with them. Um, I think just continuing that message of, you know, my MO is that food really connects us. In terms of the recipes, recipes, I do, I certainly have several that are inspired by my biological mother. There's one that I posted about on Instagram is souflaki at Arahova, which is basically, it's Greek street food and it's marinated chicken cubes with tzatziki, which is like a tangy, cucumbery, garlicky, dilly sauce with fresh mint and feta and nice kumado tomatoes and, uh, and fresh mint. Oh, you're making me hungry. And, um, <laughs> and that's the food that my mother ate when she was pregnant with me. And it's the food that I ate when I was growing up. And it's basically like healthy, fast, casual in Montreal because we have a huge Greek community. 
Um, so a lot of the dishes are also inspired from, you know, when I was in the womb. Then I'm curious. I know one of the Polish recipes that you have are the Polish hangover soup. I knew you were going to pick that I one. I mean, it just stuck out to me. You don't hear that very much about hangover soup. That's yes. very unique. Well, it didn't seem unique to me because it's such a Polish thing. If anybody knows a hangover, it's Polish people. We don't have the best reputation. We love our vodka. And that was one. That soup saved my life on numerous occasions when I was in college. I moved back to Canada from West Virginia, and I started, um, I was pursuing psychology and acting during the night. And I worked at a Polish restaurant that was owned by my auntie. And very often I would show up for the lunch shift, deeply hungover. <laughs> and the grandmothers in the kitchen, I referenced them in the introduction of the book because they were like my moms. <laughs> they saved my butt many a time. And they would greet me with a bowl of this stuff with just a big dollop of like full fat sour cream and a hard boiled egg and some meat pierogies on the side. The hunter stew, which is in there as well. And it's the zakfas in there, which is um, it's a fermented rye, which sits for a few days. And it gives us this nice sour quality. And I think it's the acidity from that that really helps cure the hangover. And there are pickles as well. Well, then would you mind reading the intro for us? Yeah, absolutely. So the Polish hangover soup, also known as żurek. This tangy fortifying soup has brought millions of Poles back to life after a hard night of bad decision making. Read vodka. The healing quality comes, ostensibly, from a fermented sour rye soup starter called zakfas. Though you can buy it at Polish markets, it takes just a few minutes to mix it up yourself. Just build in a few days to your soup-making plan for the fermentation to take place. The hearty combination of root vegetables, kielbasa, pickles, sour cream, and hard-boiled eggs makes this soup a meal. The only thing that makes it more complete, actually, um, is when you add some, like, really wonderful fresh rye bread with cold butter, and you can just kind of, like, dip it in. I just had a vision of that. It's not quite cold enough to have it yet, but that's like that's one of my favorite winter soups. We had this as kids. After we'd go skiing with my parents, we would come home and we'd have a big bowl of this. It's extremely nostalgic and it ties me to, you know, my Polish roots. And it's like this is the essence of Antony of what I stand for. So I know in some of the recipes, it's from your travels that mm-hmm. you've taken from. I noticed you kind of had your own little flavor to it. Can you describe how you would take something traditional and then kind of add your own? Yes. Um, I think, yeah, the thing with cooking is what I love about it is that I'm actually really traditional in a lot of respects. I love to learn the way things are made and then kind of figure out how I can tweak them. For the book, we had a lot of those as well because a lot of these recipes were actually formulated in New York and in Montreal, where I'm, where I'm from, and my, I still consider them both my homes. And a lot of ingredients are available there that aren't in the Midwest, for example. Um, so with my editor and my co-author, Mindy Fox, who's brilliant and held my hand throughout the entire process, we sort of wanted to tweak it for like ingredients that weren't necessarily um, available. So for example, the tadig, which I made here in Atlanta for Ari oh, in season two. <laughs> And um, Ari's Iranian, and he wanted to impress his mom because he lied to her about graduating from university. So we wanted to make nice. And I thought, you know what? Karama will have a talk with you about how to address that conversation. But I'm going to help sweeten the pot, proverbially and literally. And um, you're going to make her a dish that, that she made for you. And so we made this traditional tadik, which is actually made with barberries, um, which are like tangy and small and dry. They look like little small raisins. But um, you can use cranberries for it as well. And the way that I make it, so tadik is basically, it means bottom of the pot in Farsi, I believe. 
And usually you basically burn the bottom of a pot with rice and then it has this crispy mold and you flip it over and it looks like this nice savory cake. And you have this beautiful gradient of saffron that goes from like that beautiful sun color to like the white fluffy basmati at the, at the bottom. And so um, when I taught Ari how to make tadik, I wanted to surprise him with a second dish and I just decided there's this other dish called fesenjun which I made on Queer Eye, but it didn't make it to the episode. It's featured in the book, and it's basically a stewed. It's traditionally made with duck, but we use chicken to keep it a little more accessible, and it's a it's like a walnut puree with pomegranate molasses, so it's like tangy and sweet and acidic and lovely. And I made a pot of that so that he can present it with his mom, so it wouldn't just be rice, but there would also be a meat dish. And he walked into his apartment, and he smelled it, and he knew exactly what it was, and his face just lit up. And... It's like stuff like that gets me really emotional. Like that's something he hasn't had in a while. And he remembered exactly what it was. And he was able to present that to his mom, which I think is like the ultimate gift. Because our parents want to know that we're okay, that we're taking care of ourselves. And I think presenting somebody with food that they made for you when you were a kid, some things don't have to be said. And sometimes it's just with action. And carrying on that tradition. Absolutely. And I think that's incredibly important. I think cultural diversity is something that's incredibly important for me from the way that I was raised and, and, you know, growing up in Montreal. And that's something that I try to, that's like my MO with everything well, really that I do. you really show it in this book. You Thanks. Know, I, really tr- I, I really tried. That was a conscientious thing. I mean, it's, it's all I know how to be, but at the same time, I think it's incredibly important. Speaking of something that I kind of noticed that you conscientiously made a point of, and I know that you've been teased about this on social media and comments about using avocados yes. <laughs> a lot. I noticed that there weren't any avocado recipes, except there was avocado used with eggs on yeah, toast. Thank you for noticing. So I saw the um, one. So here's the deal. Do I love avocados? Yes. They are the beloved fruit of millennials. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. They're delicious. They're a great snack. You can grill them. I like to just scoop half and then throw in whatever dressing I have laying around in my fridge and just eat it right out of its little beautiful shell. But um, I love it. But at the same time, it's like if I was leaning into that, it would... This book is a really personal piece. And... You know, I've never written any poems about avocados. Sometimes you get remembered for something that you kind of have, don't have that much control over. And that was the case with avocados and Queer Eye. It's like they aired two episodes where I happened to use the fruit and I suddenly became that person. And I didn't want to just make it a gimmicky book like we were saying earlier about Mm -hmm. like, I want to make this super keto or paleo or one thing or another. I wanted to keep it really honest and leaning into sort of like what public perception is wouldn't be me being the most authentic version of myself. Do I eat them? Do I love them? Yes. Are they featured all over the place at the Village Den because people love them? Absolutely. But are they in the cookbook? No. It's not the time or the place for them. Maybe in my second book. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe also, avocado toast in 27 ways. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I know at the beginning that you talked about when you had auditioned for Queer Eye that you felt like, did I fit in this box? You mm-hmm. know, was I? Do I have enough culinary skills professionally to make it as the food and wine expert? How have you noticed your culinary skills progress? I mean, they've definitely progressed because I'm always learning the way I am with everything, whether it's my interest in art or music or whatever it is, I feel like I'm always growing and I've, I love being a student. There's a humility there that makes me comfortable. I don't try to act like I'm the expert or end all when it comes to anything. And my confidence has as well as a result of sort of working more. That's definitely helped with the imposter syndrome, but it is still something that kicks in every once in a while. If I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, I can feel real sorry for myself very quickly. And then I find every single little negative thing and I just put a spotlight on it and it can kind of like really affect my day. But that said, 
Yeah, it's sort of it's a daily reprieve with that. It really it depends on what day what day you get me. But I still I love learning, and, and that's something that I hope never ends. You can always keep learning. Absolutely, absolutely. The makeovers that you do with the Fab Five look really transformational. I mean, in one week, mm-hmm. is that really how long it takes when you guys do that? No, it actually takes less than that. So it's we start we have a production day on Monday which we sort of go over what the week is going to look like and we get a little bit of information and we get like our itinerary. And then on Tuesdays, it was a little different in um, in Philly, but this is how it worked for the first four seasons. And then we have one day where we basically go meet the hero. And then we have two days of, we call them field trips. So that's when Jonathan cuts the hair. Um, Tan takes our hero to a store. I take them to a restaurant. We sort of like divide and conquer. Um, and we also do, I call them Kardashian moments. It's where we're sort of like in that little um, cubicle situation and we answer questions about what's going on. And then on the fifth day, we show up at our hero's new home and we present the home and we leave them with our last lessons. And then either that day or the following day, they have like their final lesson, their event, whether it's, you know, dinner with their family, cooking for themselves, going on a hot date, planning their nonprofit event, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's an incredibly short amount of time. So yeah. how does it feel for you to make over these people's lives? I'm always sad by the time we leave because it's a short amount of time. But yes, these are like two minute scenes, but they take three to four hours to film. Like we have real conversations. There is no like no one ever says action. No one ever says cut. The cameras are rolling and we just have conversations. We want them to be as comfortable as possible and to treat this as close to real life as we possibly can under the given artificial circumstances. Um, but we want them to be comfortable so that they can share about the things that they're going through and so we can connect with them in like a really honest, profound way. And like, I love people. I love meeting people. It doesn't like, especially when they're extremely different than I am because I love finding similarities. I'm an optimist at heart. I always have been. And um, there's nothing more exciting than meeting someone and being like, you are so different than me. And then by the end of it, I'm like holding back. Te- well, that's a lie because I never hold back tears. I just let them go. But like I'm hugging the person and they're saying goodbye and it dawns on them that we're leaving and that we're saying our like actual goodbyes, not only on camera, but in real life as well. And and it's a really emotional moment. I mean, these are like these are real humans who, you know, have achieved great things and have had like a lot of obstacles along the way. And they decided to share these things with like five complete strangers. I have a tremendous amount of respect for like every single one of them. Part of me falls in love with every hero that we have. Queer Eyes, Anthony Porosky, talking with City Lights producer Summer Evans about his cookbook, In the Kitchen. The latest season of Queer Eye is on Netflix now. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. with director Adam Copeland and writer Pete Candler. Their new project explores how family histories inform our sense of self. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. 
Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.